now for your feature presentation. Just one, or two, or three, or four, five, force five. Hello and welcome to the Force 5 Podcast. I am your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg. Still recovering from COVID all these weeks later. I get, you know what? Just get vaccinated, people. Get vaccinated. I can't imagine what this would be like if I wasn't vaccinated. Even as a vaccinated person, it's still taken me so many weeks to try and shake this thing. Okay, anyway... For somebody who's spent all of my life on one busy coast or another, most of it on the West Coast, some of it on the East Coast, the Midwest can feel like a bit of an enigma. The flyover states where things seem to move a little bit slower. The Midwest has, however, given us so many fantastic settings for films. And this topic today was one that was really tough to narrow down, aside from a clear number one in my mind when, uh, when Mara approached this topic. As a writer, I've always been kind of fascinated with the Midwest. One of my very first screenplays was titled Shadows of Chicago, and another was titled Tornado Alley. That was a movie about a guy who got out of the mob and went into hiding in a small Midwestern town, only to have his past eventually catch up with him. But we'll have more on the Midwest later with Mara Eakin, who's my guest tonight. She's she's fantastic. I can't wait for you to hear it. But first, we got to talk about last week's show. Last week's show with J-Zone, very well-received so thank you for the kind words there. I've received a lot of supportive messages, too, about the switch to a bi-weekly show. So, again, thanks for the support. I've only gotten one message telling me to man up, get back to every week, or they were going to stop listening forever. And that uh, that email was for my mom. So, anyway, the topic last week was Top 580s Cult Classics. And I had a bunch of people across social media who chimed in. Ken Cunningham says, Masters of the Universe, classic Dolph Lundgren movie that I was no doubt disappointed by as a as a probably eight-year-old kid when that came out. Joseph Bridges said, The Caller from 1987. I think Malcolm McDowell's in that one. Vinegar Syndrome put that out in a great package uh, a couple of years ago. Bruce Perky says, Reanimator, great one there. Some other ones that were mentioned, Plague Dogs, not a cartoon that you want to take your kids to see. Fortress, Parents, Life Force, Kroll, The Toxic Avenger, which also spawned a cartoon at some point, Miss 45, which we talked about recently on New York Exploitation Films, Night of the Creeps, great satirical horror comedy, and Miracle Mile is another one. If you want your picks read on the show, all you got to do is hit me up on social media, Force5Pod on Twitter, Force5Podcast on Instagram. I always throw the topic out there, so if you have opinions, your comment might just make the next show. I saw a couple of interesting things this week that I want to talk about. The first is a 1983 made-for-television movie called Death Ride to Osaka. A young girl's dream of stardom leads her into a world of sex peddlers. They're trying to make me a prostitute. And Jillian and Jennifer Jason Lee are girls of the White Orchid, Monday. Made-for-TV films are an interesting time capsule, which we just don't have anymore due to the streaming services and the death of traditional television. From as far back as the 60s through the early 90s, I'd say, made-for-TV movies were a big deal. Event viewings that people made sure they had couch time set aside for. Networks had blocks. They had, like, the, the late, late movie or the Monday night movie. They had these different blocks that, unlike today's television environment, if you missed it, you may never have the chance to see that film again. Most made-for-TV films were shown twice on network television. They had the debut, and then they would have a follow-up screening. But in the case of this film, Death Ride to Osaka, it only aired once. Now, made-for-TV movies had to be interesting stories that relied on tight storytelling without leaning on the sex, violence, and language that you could get away with in theaters. And they had to be done on a budget of what I'd estimate was between a million dollars and maybe 2.5 million bucks or so. Now, some people have a certain stigma around films made for TV as if they're inherently of a lower quality or went straight to TV because they just weren't good enough for the big screen, but that's not exactly true. Television studios back then had film divisions, and they made films for TV to draw viewers to their channel. 
These aren't like direct-to-video DVD releases. Big-time directors like Steven Spielberg and Edward Zwick had worked on productions made for TV with Duel from 1971 in Spielberg's case and Special Bulletin in 1983 for Edward Zwick's case. Made-for-TV films like The Night Stalker and Don't Be Afraid of the Dark are amazing horror films, the latter even being remade in 2010 backed by Guillermo del Toro. Death Ride to Osaka, originally released on TV as Girls of the White Orchid, originally aired in late November of 1983 and was produced by NBC's Hill Mandelker Films, which produced 10 different made-for-TV films between 1981 and 1984, many focusing on specific audiences, and this one was clearly geared towards the female crowd. It was released on a Monday night opposing Monday night football, so if you weren't interested in Dan Marino shellacking the Bengals, this was your counter-programming that evening. It stars Jennifer Jason Lee, yes, Jennifer Jason Lee, in her last made-for-TV role. And I was surprised that she was in this, considering she had a big role, many would argue the lead role, in the amazing comedy Fast Times at Ridgemont High just a year before this released. But it was also common back then to bounce between features and other made-for-TV films before making the jump strictly to features. She had been in plenty of made-for-TV films like The Killing of Randy Webster in 81 and The First Time in 1982 and continued to make some ABC after-school specials, but this right here was her coup de grace from the made-for-TV scene. Interestingly enough, the events of this film are based on the true story of Tom Allard's girlfriend. Allard was an actor with bit parts in movies like um, uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and he played Shung in the 1991 TV show Land of the Lost. He's also here as a newspaper salesman, but yeah, I, I thought it was interesting that the events of the film are based on his girlfriend's true story. Jennifer Jason Lee plays the ultra-naive Carol Heath, a waitress in Los Angeles who aspires to be a singer and answers a talent ad in the paper that advertises opportunities in the Orient. Unfortunately, when she gets there, she realizes that the gig at the White Orchid Club isn't exactly what she thought it would be. Sure, she's singing, and the film features some songs actually sung by Jennifer Jason Lee, but she's also expected to cozy up with the local Japanese men, many of whom are Yakuza, with the expectation of sharing more than just your sweet, sweet voice. When girls brought to the White Orchid don't play ball, they're sent to the lower-end clubs in Osaka, where dreams and girls go to die, hence the alternate title of the film. Also in the mix is Don, Carol's boyfriend who's in the Navy. When he's discharged, he comes looking for Carol and finds some trouble for himself overseas as well. The film is a pretty grounded look at the nature of prostitution and, and human trafficking in the early 80s. Watching this, it's easy to understand how young hopefuls would get caught up in this kind of scheme, and it's scary to think that thousands of young girls probably answered ads just like this one, only to find themselves stuck in a foreign land with no way out. There are a few other threads in the film, one featuring the other girls at the club, including a few that end tragically, and one featuring the Yakuza son's boss, which didn't feel realistic considering what he'd probably done up to that point. The film stays on a pretty realistic course until the end where it unfortunately steers straight into the realm of the preposterous and felt extremely rushed, especially the climax, which features an elderly Yakuza boss using kung fu with the speed of a man stuck in quicksand. And of course, it ends on a happy note for those slipping off to bed at 11pm on a work night. Looking at the limitations of films like this, there are short bursts of violence that are pretty tame and there was no foul language, which again, par for the course on cable TV. I was, however, surprised that there was a bit of nudity in the film, at least four different scenes, including one featuring Jennifer Jason Leigh and one that kind of mirrors a naked, sleazy, flashdance style scene in a shitty Osaka bar that feels like it was filmed for an entirely different movie. For a made-for-TV film, I was not expecting boobs. I was not expecting naked women. Now, I was two when this film came out, so I can only imagine that the versions shown on NBC did not show the nudity, and that this was filmed in conjunction with either a European release or under the assumption that it would be on video store shelves within a few years. Death Ride to Osaka is a decent enough film and an interesting cautionary tale that I'm sure was effective for couch surfers in 1983. As a standalone experience now, it's tough to recommend to anybody outside of Jennifer Jason Lee completionist because she's the best thing about the film. She acts her ass off here and shows why she'd be the star that she was. While the film works as a decent melodrama, it's chock full of cheap tropes and packed with what I've heard referred to as yellow fear. And in an age where we've had enough fear-mongering over what idiots have dubbed the China virus, this can be a tough pill to swallow. 
Still, for something that was probably expected to be seen only once, there is something to be said for the craft used to make the film. Jonathan Kaplan, the director, was an extremely competent filmmaker. The film is interestingly lit, well shot, and features some bitching music. I really did like the soundtrack here. This was released as part of Fun City Edition's Primetime Panic Blu-ray set alongside two other made-for-TV films Freedom from 1981 and Dreams Don't Die from 1982. The picture looks good, although there's some noticeable grain it didn't bother me. The disc contains some interviews, including one with the director Jonathan Kaplan, as well as a commentary by the incredibly informed film programmer Lars Nilsson. I also watched a movie called The Farmer from 1977. Five easy pieces, easy writer, taxi driver, important and deeply personal films, each in its own way has become a classic. Each told the story of people looking for their own piece of the American dream. The Farmer is a motion picture in this special tradition. It's a story of a man who takes a stand, a man who says no and means it. A man like Kyle Martin. All he wanted from life was his farm and a chance to make something of it. Maybe he wanted too much. Kyle Martin returns from World War II determined to get his farm back up and running. Unfortunately, the bank wants to repossess it. When a gambler offers to pay Kyle 50 grand to kill the gangsters that blinded him, he originally declines until the gangsters make things personal. I, over the years, have heard a ton of hype about The Farmer because on a lot of the movie sites I frequent, this was continuously brought up in conversations about the best films that had not yet been brought to disc. Hell, as far as I can tell, this movie was never even released on VHS. After its original run as either The Farmer or its alternate title, Blazing Revenge, it simply disappeared from the public eye. It was written by a trio of people that really haven't written anything since and was directed by a longtime editor named David Berlatsky, who never directed a film again. After what I assume were years full of legal battles, seeing as uh, Bill Olson from Code Red had advertised the DVD as early as 2006 and had recently taken down a bootlegged VHS rip that was slapped up on YouTube with the copyright strike, the label Scorpion Releasing must have bought the rights from Code Red and finally got The Farmer out to the masses. The film starts with Kyle in uniform on a train with a bunch of other servicemen. When the train bartender refuses to serve a black soldier, Kyle raises an exception and there's a brawl. Eventually the other soldiers throw Kyle from the train and he walks his ass back to his farm in rural Georgia. When he gets there we find out why he defended the man's honor as his farmhand named Gumshoe, yes Gumshoe, is also African American. Only a short time later, Kyle finds himself mixed up in all kinds of malarkey, including rescuing a degenerate gambler after he crashes on the farm, banging the gambler's girlfriend, and finding himself on the wrong end of the mob, a position that costs Kyle dearly. As a revenge story, The Farmer is nothing we haven't seen before. Gary Conway plays Kyle, a cigar-chomping, sunglass-wearing, no-nonsense soldier. The rest of the characters feel like cardboard cutouts of archetypes we've seen a million times. From a filmmaking aspect, the camera work feels lifeless, the story moves, at least at first, at the speed of molasses, and the entire production just seems to lack a zip. The film was advertised as being so violent that it barely escaped an X rating, but I was a little let down in that respect. When there are moments of violence, they're pretty well done, giving us the red paint blood that so many 70s movies were soaked with, but nothing really felt groundbreaking. There is one particularly effective headshot as Kyle puts a revolver to a guy's lips and blows the back of his head out, and another in which a guy gets blasted with a shotgun that slides him across the pavement, which was probably my favorite kill in the flick. There's also a long, disturbing sexual assault scene that's supposed to be impactful, but the relationship between the victim and the farmer wasn't really fleshed out, and the bizarre music choice definitely lessened the wallop that it was designed to have. The, the music in this film is terrible. I think that's one of the main detriments of the suspense aspect of this film. The real question with a movie like The Farmer is, was it worth the wait? Did it live up to the hype? And as somebody who hadn't seen the film and had only heard the hype around it, I think I did a decent job of tempering my expectations. As a revenge film, The Farmer's okay, but films like Taxi Driver and Rolling Thunder are easily better than this, and I admit that I'm a little confused as to why there's so much fanfare around it. I suppose it's just one of those deals where, because the film was nearly impossible to find for all these years, there was just some hazy mysticism built up around it. 
In all honesty, the saga surrounding the rights was probably more entertaining to me than the film was. The Blu-ray disc by Scorpion releasing looks pretty good. The picture was scanned from the original negative, but disappointingly, there are no special features outside of a trailer here. We're going to get Mara Eakin on here just a second to go over top five Midwest films. But first, we have to talk about today's sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by The Clap. No, not the bad one. This is the new collection from the band Infant Sorrow. For the first time ever, you'll own every hit Infant Sorrow has ever put out in one complete package. Led by the amazing lead singer Aldis Snow, you'll rock to the hits at the top of the charts with international smashes like Inside of You, Bangers, Beans and Mash, and Furry Walls, as well as thought-provoking, world-changing ballads like African Child and We've Got to Do Something, spread across your choice of either two cassettes or compact discs. Whether you're just discovering the greatest rock band of our generation or you're a seasoned sorrow sucker already, you'll be rocking around the clock. The Clap Collection is not sold in stores, so call now. 555-2386, that's 555-2386, or send $9.99 plus $3.50 shipping and handling directly to Aldous Snow Productions. Don't delay. Catch The Clap today. Welcome back to Force 5. Tonight, I'm joined by Mara Eakin. She's a writer and editor who's worked in entertainment media for over 12 years, has written for Vulture, USA Today, Uproxx, all kinds of publications you know and probably love. Mara, how are you? I'm good. I will say, one caveat, I have a cough, A. B, I'm in the process of writing a story for Uproxx. <laughs> so... Oh, well, you're still writing for Uproxx. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just hasn't been published yet, but, you know, that's why I can call myself a wannabe screenwriter because I'm <laughs> writing things for the screen that just haven't been made yet. Yeah, I'm always <laughs> writing like a book in my mind, you know. Exactly. We're all writers. Well, <laughs> you and I are writers. We'll say that. Now, obviously, you've been writing for a very long time. What are some of the uh, favorite things for you to write about for my listeners who might not be familiar with your work? Um, my favorite things to write about currently, I love talking to people. I love like, whatever, whether it's like a famous person or a not famous person, I like finding out people's stories. And then I really like diving into like, entertainment history that like, I weirdly care about, but I don't know if other people care about like, <laughs> uh, you know, I've done a, an oral history of like the obstacle course from Double Dare, where it's just like, tell me how you designed it. Because like, things that I just think that maybe weren't saved at the time, like, now there'd be like Instagram and everyone from set would be posting and whatever. Right. It's like, then there was like Nickelodeon magazine, which was like vaguely propaganda. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, that like remote control or, you know, um, I'm working on a story right now. That's about a, a state lottery game show that like, I liked, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a bizarre sort of we like window into that world. But, um, I don't know. I like doing kind of stuff like that. That's my like favorite stuff to write. I find that more stimulating than like writing. I like writing reviews, but sometimes it's hard to find something to say about a C movie. <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay movie is sure. okay movie or an okay record. It's just an okay record. So. Well, shit, I'm I'm interested in the double dare stuff. New topic, top five double dare obstacle courses. Oh, yeah. I mean, or just like the things you think that would be the hardest ones to beat. Yeah. Oh, I know. I always, when I used to watch that show, it was the nose one grabbing the flag out of the nose that always gave me anxiety. <laughs> like I could do all the other ones, but that's pure luck grabbing that flag out of the nose. Yeah. That one or like the one where it's like the pancakes and you had to like go through the whipped cream and stuff. And there was an SNL sketch about that semi recently where it's like how hard that would be. I know. And if you get third place, they say you get a year's supply of Hershey's syrup, but it's really, as you get older, you realize that's just one Costco sized bottle of Hershey's syrup. <laughs> that's gonna, probably going to last you all year. Well, you've professed your love for game shows. You've been on a game show, been on Jeopardy. I've been on a game show, been on a couple actually, um, but I can't remember the name of the second. <laughs> <laughs> it was that good. Uh, Ken Jennings was on it and it's on Game Show Network and I cannot remember the name of it. Um, but it was on that semi recently and I won zero dollars. But I was on Jeopardy in like 2005 or six. So it was like, it feels like a lifetime ago. Um, it was like, you know, 
a bajillion pounds ago and like life experience <laughs> and all that. So I have been on Jeopardy. I did meet Alex Trebek um, and I won like $10,000. So like $6,000 wow. <laughs> and that, that money's all long gone. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, speaking of movies, though, we're on a movie podcast here. What are some of your favorite films or TV shows just in general that might not make our list tonight? Oh, coincidentally, a lot of my favorite things have made the list this evening. So it's a, mm-hmm. it's, a it's an odd uh, choice. But some of my favorite things, I don't know. I like um, I like everything from like a. <laughs> this is tough i'm like what are some of my favorites <laughs> uh i like everything i don't know i like uh i mean i'm watching Encanto a million times like my kid with my kids and I, oh that's, yeah that's endlessly watchable and uh i like Wee's playhouse and i like uh you know virgin suicides i like a bunch of different things <laughs> a great mix hopefully you don't watch virgin suicides with the kids yet not yet they're three now maybe <laughs> when they turn four well, it's that age. Now we're doing top five Midwest films tonight, which I was pretty excited about until I realized that just like you, a lot of my favorite films are set in the Midwest. So it's like, how do you just narrow it down to five? What was your inspiration for the topic of going Midwest films? You know, I'm from Cleveland. Um, and so I lived there for 18 years and then I went to college in Southeast Ohio. So I was there for five and then moved to New York for a couple of years. And then I went back to Chicago and I was there for 12 years. So I just have like a strong probably more than 12 years i'm like 15 no who who even knows at this point um like 12 years anyway so i live in la now but i have a strong attachment to the midwest like there are things i miss about it um i don't miss snow but i do miss like uh corner bars and just like this kind of like grittier attitude and stuff so uh i don't know it just felt like um a good one for me to do because i had some ideas off the top of my head and uh it felt different i don't know sometimes it's hard for me to choose like top 10 top five action movies or whatever of all time so i like to pick something kind of niche and specific because then i feel like i can get into it a little more yeah there's some like i said there's some great choices here did you have any criteria as you were narrowing down your list like for me for example uh illinois is in the midwest but i wanted to keep chicago specifically out of it because it seemed like bigger city stuff chicago could be its own list so i stuck to suburbs or like smaller areas in different states were there any any criteria that you used to narrow things down um my criteria was i had to have seen the movie so i I have some blind spots i'll admit like i've (laughs) I've fallen asleep several times while watching blues brothers so i couldn't include that Mm. um i've actually never seen fargo so i didn't include that one but like fargo is kind of like technically the midwest but like is it anyways um And so I kind of just went with that. I just made a list and I looked at a bunch of lists online of Midwest movies. And there were certain ones that I was like, oh, that's technically set in the Midwest, but you wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily know. Like Mean Girls comes up as a Midwest movie and it is set in the northern (laughs) suburbs of Chicago, but like truly it could be in Salt Lake City. You know what I mean? Like it could be anywhere. So I tried to pick ones that I thought sort of had like a Midwest sensibility to them. Yeah, that's a good point, too. I think all of mine, except for maybe one, feel like Midwest films. And the only reason I kept it on my list was just because I, I just watched it. And and I just there's no way I could keep it off because it's one of my favorite <laughs> movies ever. Uh, all right, Mara, enough about that. Are you ready to get into this list? I'm ready. You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening here right now? I know what's going to happen. No, no, no. All right, why don't you kick us off here? What's number five on your list of top five Midwest films? Number five on mine is Heather's, which um, is supposed to take place at a high school. I think it's like in Dayton area of Ohio. Here at Westerberg High, the students are dying to be popular. Just thinking more along the lines of slitting Heather Duke's wrists open, making it look like a suicide. Watch Heather's, a Comedy Central special movie presentation. It's a movie that I saw, you know, like when you're a 12 years old or whatever and they're like home on a <laughs> yeah. Saturday night and TBS is playing like an edited version of an 80s movie I remember seeing it and just like it like rocking my world to a point where I was like this movie is for me like this movie speaks to me so I really I just love Heather's like and I just think that it has sort of like this ennui of like a high school where it's just like you know there's a lot of affluent kids a lot of kids 
just doing nothing and uh, just nothing to do in town besides like fuck with each other. <laughs> so I went with Heather's and play croquet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, you said you when you first watched Heather's, it was on TV. Did you find it a completely uh, crazier movie when you finally watched the un- unedited version? <laughs> yes. There's a few like that, like for years. Uh, well, let me see if I chose it on my list. <laughs> for for years, there were some like John Hughes movies that I thought were right. one way. And then I'd see them later and be like, there's boobs in this. Like, <laughs> you know I mean, just like there's boobs in Home Alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a Heather's for those who haven't seen Heather's. It's kind of like the precursor to Mean Girls. There's like this group of yeah. girls named Heather, and uh, it's a very black, very dark comedy. Um, Christian Slater is awesome in it, as is Winona Ryder. And Doherty, yeah. There's a bunch of really great, bunch of really great people in it. Um, really great, like weird, dark performances. I wouldn't say it's necessarily like the most PC movie. If you watch it, oh no, twenty two, you're <laughs> like really. Um, there's definitely points that you're like likes. Um, but I think it's, I don't know. I just enjoyed that. It's kind of wild. And Christian Slater doing his best Jack Nicholson performance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's his best young Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. And there is a part where you're like, oh, I'm like really into Christian Slater. And then he turns into this like total nightmare. And so this, he was always really good at that kind of role. He was, he was. All right. That's Heather's at number five. Great one. I didn't even think of this when it was coming to building my list. That's a great choice. Thank you. So my number five is my Illinois pick. All five of mine are from different states. My Illinois pick, this one crept onto the list last minute because I just saw it. After I watched it, it's like, okay, it's it's got to bump one off because a spot deserves to be on here for 1992's Wayne's World. From the basement of Wayne and Garth. Excellent. Comes the most high octane. I think I'm gonna pull a chug. Vitamin backed. I'm getting tired of holding this. Yeah, that's what she said. Industrial strength. From this height, you could really hock a loogie on someone. Adventure of all time. Hi, Wayne. It's Wayne. It's God. It's Wayne's world. We're not mental or anything, so don't be afraid. Rated PG-13. Now playing at theaters everywhere. I love Wayne's World. It takes place in Aurora, Illinois, which is like a suburb of Chicago. And it's about Wayne, of course, and his buddy Garth. They are these slackers who they have this public access TV show called Wayne's World. And they sign on with a big company to promote their their show because they're seeing a rise in numbers. But the producer, Benjamin, played just magnificently by Rob Lowe, wants to change the show and then also steal Wayne's girlfriend. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. But this is one of those movies that I watched constantly on VHS when I was growing up. Because in the time before streaming and DVD, VHS tapes were not, they were, they were not cheap. And my family was not well off. So we had a couple of VHS tapes and this was one of them. So when we were sick from school or, you know, during summer vacation or whatever, this was on repeat. So, so many quotable lines great product placement joke in here that still holds up mm-hmm. today and you know like I said I watched it probably oh my gosh maybe I'd, I'd be surprised if I watched it under 30 times I mean so many times I saw this movie but it still holds up today I just got the blu-ray and and rewatched it just brilliant I've watched it at least 100 times there was a summer when in seventh grade when I me and a friend tried to watch it every day um, I, I watched it just the other day as well, cause I was working on a project about it and I can, I can quote that movie backwards and forwards. And I just think even now having seen it probably like 200 times, like it's just the funniest movie and I still find new things to like about it. So you might hear about that movie later from me, wink, wink. I'm glad. Well, you know what? I got some other things to say about it, but I'll wait. I'll wait for now until uh, we talk about it perhaps again later. But that, yeah, that's my number five, Wayne's World from 1992. Fun fact, a lot of like the exteriors where they're driving the car, like the, the spire with the cars on it, like that's all stuff that was in the area. But like Wayne's house and some of the exteriors and stuff like that's all in L.A. It's like in the valley. Uh, so I have, that doesn't surprise me constantly been meaning like I gotta go to Wayne's house. I'll do it someday. 
Number four for me is a is the aforementioned John Hughes movie that I didn't realize had boobs in it. It's 16 Candles. 16 Candles. A movie about creeps. Score a direct hit. Hunks. Hopes. Parties. This is everybody. Bodies. Geeks. Clicks. Yes, I'm back. So I smell. And all the terrifying things. Can I borrow your underpants for 10 minutes? That make life worth living. Classic. 16 Candles. This is getting good. Rated PG. Special sneak preview Friday and Saturday night. Check newspaper for theater information. Again, a very not uh, PC movie um, with a lot of issues. But man, I really just loved, like, I really identified with Molly Ringwald as the sort of, like, geeky nobody that fell in love with this, like, older kid who had no idea who she was. And somehow in this, like, magic Cinderella story... Um, they sort of find each other over the course of a high school party. Um, I was never invited my whole high school career, like to a party. Um, and so I just sort of like, it just felt like this sort of magic um, movie for me. And I, again, I don't, I don't know, <laughs> is is it all Midwest high school movies that I'm choosing? But um, <laughs> it just really felt like it's a, it feels very Midwest. It feels very like having your grandparents come and, shove you out of the room and and all of that like it's it just feels very uh kind of boring which you know i wouldn't call the midwest boring but it it can get a little you know it's not uh 90210 let's put it that way <laughs> sure sure yeah this is one that i geez i think i rewatched like a year ago and it did have a lot of those moments that you mentioned where it's like ooh that yeah probably couldn't be made today. There's whole characters that you're like, yikes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But again, as a product of the time, it's still really funny. And Molly Ringwald in John Hughes movies has always been just iconic. And of course, you have um, uh, Anthony Michael Hall in there as well, who's just great. Michael Sheffling, uh, John Cusack's briefly in it, Joan Cusack's in it. Oh, I forgot they were in there. Yeah. Wait, is John Cusack in it? I feel like he's like he is in there. Yeah, the he's in there in like a bit part. And Joan Cusack has like the neck brace and like the she can't get the drink out of the drinky cup. I don't know. There's a bunch of good stuff in there. Yep. And it's just a great opening too, where, you know, it's her 16th birthday and everybody has forgotten. It, it, you know, I think as, as a teenage girl or whatever, you can like identify with that sort of feeling of just being like, no one understands me and not until I get out of here or whatever will people really understand who I am or there's one person at my school who might understand me but I don't but they don't know me well enough yet so sort of all of that sort of angst the other thing I'll say here one quick caveat is that these are not necessarily <laughs> like if I was going to vote on the Oscars it was like the Oscars of Midwestern movies like I maybe, <laughs> wouldn't, I maybe wouldn't vote for these as like prestige films but like these are my five Midwestern movies <laughs> That, like I really love. <laughs> yeah, and that's the entire point of the show. Like <laughs> your your personal top five for whatever reasons you want. Mm -hmm. These are them. So yeah, fantastic. You know what? I'm looking at my list and I don't have any John Hughes on here, which is surprising for me. Mm -hmm. But my number four is going in a completely different direction than Sixteen Candles or the other two movies that we've talked about so far. This is probably the loudest. And uh, most bombastic choice on my list. This is one that I will defend as a entertaining as hell movie. I'm not going to say that it's a, a, a like Oscar worthy, like you said. But this is 1996's Twister. Oh, I was hoping you were going with Roadhouse, but you know, Twister is also very good. The New York Times calls Twister exuberant as a roller coaster ride, Hurry! staged with adrenaline pumping fury and spectacular special effects. Count. A gale force movie. You got to get out of there! They're gonna drop right on us! With the energy to blow audiences right out of the theater. Hang on! Twister. PG-13. Twister is one of those movies that, again, when I'm 15 and I'm going to watch the, the summer blockbuster, Twister delivered, and it still delivers today. This, if you are living in a cave or have not for some reason seen Twister, it's about these storm chasers who are trying to develop this advanced weather alert system. And to, to test it, they need to put it inside of a tornado. So 
they are chasing tornadoes to get this thing into the path of a tornado. And there's two things in the way. There's another more advanced team that's trying to beat them to the technological punch. They're led by um, Carrie Elwes in a great villainous role. And then the two lead scientists on this project, Bill and Joe Harding, are in the precipice of divorce. They're already split up. Bill Paxton's character, who plays Bill, he's trying to get remarried and he wants her to sign the divorce papers. This is, like I said, it's the definition of a blockbuster. It's it's big, it's loud, it's stupid, it's silly, but the special effects sequences are pretty great. Even rewatching it recently, uh, aside from some obviously questionable 1996 CGI, which never holds up. <laughs> like the uh, but there are some like, yeah, like there are some practical effects in here that they did. Uh, Jan de Bont, the the director of Speed, also directed this, and there's some great stuff in here with like trucks being hurled through the air, houses being demolished, just utter devastation. The production bought eight blocks worth of houses in an actual town to destroy. <laughs> like that's, they they went big on this thing. Uh, now the weak link here is Helen Hunt. I never thought Helen Hunt was great in this role, but Bill Paxson is good. Uh, great supporting cast with like, I said Carrie Elwes, but it's also got Alan Ruck, Jamie Gertz, a young Philip Seymour Hoffman's in here. You know, when you said Midwest films, this to me represents a lot of the Midwest. It was half filmed in Iowa, half filmed in Oklahoma, which I don't think Oklahoma counts as Midwest. But as it's taking place in Iowa, you see these cornfields, you see these endless Midwestern farm roads. Plus, you get a cow flying through the air stuck in a tornado. So when I think Midwest, it's a cow flying through a tornado. Now, apparently... There's a rated R version of Twister that exists somewhere. I don't think we'll ever see it. We do see Helen Hunt mouth the F word in the movie, but it's never said because they wanted PG-13. But somewhere there's more profanity and grislier wounds when it comes to the tornado that DeBont made. So if we're lucky, maybe someday one of these uh, companies will pick it up and put like a special edition out of that R-rated version of Twister. I would totally buy it. And the actor's name, by the way, is Kurt Fuller. I just looked it up because I was like, he's been in like 200 things. He's constantly in things. He's always, he's always good. Um, I love the scene with him and Garth about pralines and dick, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> Twister is an excellent choice. It's very, uh, I don't know, being in LA now, it's like no, there aren't twisters here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, it's definitely yeah, a thing where, yeah. like, you know, we used to go in the hallway and do t- tornado drills and stuff like that. So, oh yeah, yeah, you got the tornado sirens and stuff mm-hmm. in the Midwest. It's just, yeah. It's so good. And I don't know if this is true, but I read a lot about Bill Paxson and Helen Hunt really not being able to stand each other. (laughs) And that's why if you go to, I think it was Universal Studios, they used to have the Twister ride. Mm -hmm. They they filmed all of their like little sequences for the screen that you'd watch before you got on the ride. They had to film them all separately because they didn't want to be in the same room with each other. (laughs) So that's my number four, 1996's Twister. All right. Here's my number three. Are you ready? Guess what? It's another movie about high school. <laughs> now I'm like, shit. <laughs> I'm on a roll here. Um, it's it's Gross Point Blank. For all of us who couldn't wait to get out of high school. You look great. How long have you been? Since you stood me up on prom night. Comes the story of a man. What have you been doing with your life? Professional killer. Do you have to do postgraduate work for that? Who's looking for a second shot. Welcome home. I'm in love with you. Such an amazing movie. John Cusack plays this hitman, Martin Blank. Um, and he sort of is having trouble focusing and his assistant, who's played by Joan Cusack, and like really they're just so amazing together, um, convinces him to go to his high school reunion, um, where he runs into the girl that he jilted at prom who's played by Minnie driver um so he's like also supposed to do a hit while he's in town uh long story short the hit turns out to be someone he probably shouldn't be hitting and uh dan Aykroyd's this like rival uh hitman there's other rival hitmen that are kind of like in town as well trying to complete the hit before martin blank does it and it's really like a dark cool movie with an amazing soundtrack um like joe strummer i think worked on it and so it's got so much like amazing sort of like 80s ska and like 
deep kind of like cool punk cuts like college radio 80s cuts yep it's just a movie that's great and like he kills a guy with a pen you know what i mean like it's <laughs> such a good movie and uh and his old house is a 7-eleven now like there's just so many good details and i really feel like that was like peak john cusack at his most like weird and manic sort of like delivery uh and i just yeah. really loved him in that era of of projects yeah this was uh what year did this come out 97 i want to say i saw it i saw it again i saw it when i was in high school and i remember like going with a friend you know we'd go like every weekend like a matinee whatever and i remember just being like man that movie was great like i want to see it a hundred times more like really connecting with it identifying with it yeah he had a great run there in the late 90s mm-hmm. with con air well that's a guilty pleasure for me <laughs> but con air then this one and then uh high fidelity just really really good movies mm-hmm. and like you said this one has just a fantastic soundtrack the the scene where he and dan Aykroyd have a shootout in that 7-eleven is classic it's just so good. I need to watch that movie again. I don't think my husband has, has ever seen it, which is like we've oh. been together for twelve years. Like we're gonna we're gonna do this this weekend. <laughs> the the scene in the high school as well is I, I modeled one of the scenes in one of my very first screenplays after that high school uh, <laughs> that high school sequence. So I uh, I owe a little bit to Gross Point Blank as well. I don't think it's a movie that like enough people. I think it has sort of like a cult following, but I really don't feel like it got enough cred at the time. And I don't think it's a movie that we give enough cred to now necessarily. I agree. I agree. It's a really just a great blend of action, comedy and romance too. Mm-hmm. solid choice. Thank you. And that, where does that take place? It's a gross point in Michigan, right? Yeah, Michigan. I'm going to go to your home state with my number three here for uh, 2011 film which is the newest film on my list 2011's super eight i've got nothing against your friends i like your friends now things have obviously changed for us i have to help charles finish his movie be good for you to spend some time with kids who don't run around with cameras and monster makeup uh could you close your eyes please yeah Guys, watch out! An eastbound freighter derailed what the cargo was on that freighter. We don't know. Have you seen Super 8 before? Guess what? I haven't. I'm not really into like scary stuff and i know it's not like incredibly scary it's not like saw or whatever but like even suspense sometimes like i just just don't it gets me (laughs) yeah this one's um it's more heavy on the sci-fi aspect but basically it takes place in the summer of 79 this group of teenage kids who are out to make a zombie movie and they are they go out to the middle of nowhere there's this old train station where they're gonna film a scene at night and this train's coming in the background and they're like production value. We got to get this in the shot. Let's get this train in the shot. And then they see this truck on the other side of the tracks coming straight for the train and it causes the train to derail. There's this huge train crash. And then the rest of the film is them investigating the strange events that are happening in their small town afterwards. This movie is a ton of fun. It feels like a mashup between films like stand by me and ET. It's like a darker Amblin movie that I would have loved at 12 years old. I still love now. Uh, it's a movie that feels, it now it feels kind of old news because 80s nostalgia is everywhere. And it's like the thing to do now is like set your movie in the 80s. But in 2011, it was kind of ahead of those like trends. It has some really, really fantastic special effects sequences. The train crash that's the inciting incident is awesome and it's totally over the top no train crash would probably ever look like this and then uh there's a finale scene where the kids are just bounding through the middle of this small ohio town and things are just being decimated around them it's just really really good the group of kids are the glue that has to keep a movie like this together 
And I was really convinced that they were real friends. They all had a really great chemistry together. It felt like something you couldn't fake. And of course, as a kid who wanted to make movies when I was little, they're young zombie fans. They're trying to make a movie. That brought me right back to my childhood. Uh, those, those days where you could just get up uh, on, on the first day of summer vacation and then just create something through that day and ride your bikes wherever and go on adventures before you grow up and things seem so difficult. So yeah, Super 8, I, I, I think it's a really good movie. It's got some great creature effects um, and it takes place small town in Ohio. So yeah, that's my number three. Excellent choice. Again, haven't seen it, but I've heard it. I've heard good things. I'm, I'm, I literally wrote it down though. I'm like, I gotta fucking sorry, language, language. I gotta get around the. <laughs> it's allowed. <laughs> yeah, you, sh- you should, you should watch it. It's good. I will. I, I, I don't know. I need to watch more movies than I do. It's just with kids. It's like hard to for me to sometimes focus and do it at nighttime. Uh, but I have seen Frozen a hundred times, so yeah. <laughs> I'm right there with you. We also have a three year old, and uh, it took me five nights to watch Dune finally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, i get it that's like me and blues brothers um i will give you my number two you might be familiar with it it's called wayne's world um yeah again like i i mean when people ask me like what's your favorite movie of all time generally my answer is wayne's world like i just think it's so good and i even like wayne's world too frankly uh i like mm-hmm. it kind of a lot and uh i just think it's such a good movie and and re-watching it the other day uh because i'm doing a i did a story that hasn't run yet but maybe will by the time the podcast is out about um kind of like cameos in the movie or like i said sort of near cameos like people Mm -hmm. you're like oh who is that and then you look and they've since been in 150 other movies like literally (laughs) um you know people like that that movie is just peppered with them and there's just so many cool I love the Empire Carpet guy at the beginning. Uh, like, I just, <laughs> I just think it's such a great movie, and I think it's very. I think there's a part of it that's like of its time. Like, I don't think my kids will know what cable access is. The, it's like the it's like their version of YouTube. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll have to. That's how we'll have to yeah. say. <laughs> but it was like harder to get to, I guess. But I just think like every line in that movie is so funny. You know, from like Wayne's like opening monologue when he's like walking through his house talking about his extensive collection of name tags and hairnets. Like, <laughs> I just think it's such a good movie. So, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit, but even the irreverent dialogue, like the gun rack. Yeah. And on a gun, let alone many guns, it can necessitate <laughs> a rack. Yeah. Just so good. The one thing that I, I think sours it a little is that they actually don't seem to really like each other that much. Like Wayne, um, Mike Myers and Dana Carvey. Uh, And they did that reunion, like those like Josh Gad uh, organized reunions, like during the sort of beginning of the pandemic. Oh, I I didn't see that. Oh man, it's on YouTube. Go and watch it because it has like everybody. (laughs) Like, oh, let's get like Russell. Let's get, uh, you know, Old Man (laughs) Withers. Like everyone's there. Um, And it's a little, it's sort of like, Josh Gad is clearly like a huge fan of the movie, but you know, you also like <laughs> if I were going to write a book and I could spend a, a week with each of these guys, I'd have so many dumb questions about that movie. Like the things like drill down into it. Yeah. Well, I'll have to check that out. This one also, I didn't mention it before, but it has not too long ago, we did top five diegetic songs and this has one of the best diegetic scenes ever in it with, them singing to Queen mm-hmm. in the Mirth Mobile. It's just, oh, it's so good. <laughs> There's a bunch of good, like, uses of songs. Like, some of the crucial taunt songs. Like, even the cover of Ballroom Blitz. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's just a great pull. It is. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll hurl. Exactly. That's the uh, <laughs> that's the tagline. Now, you obviously have seen both recently. There's an d- ongoing debate that my one of my best friends and I have. What do you think is the better movie, Wayne's World 1 or Wayne's World 2? Um, well, I think it's Wayne's World 1, but that is because I don't care for Jim Morrison and his weird uh naked friend in that movie. I just don't I don't I don't know. It wasn't like my vibe. Um, but I still think it's really good. And one time I saw the like Wayne stock. Um, one time I saw the guy that plays uh 
that plays Cassandra's dad at, at a farmer's market here in LA. And it was like seeing the Pope. Do you know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> Oh my God, like it's that guy. Like I was so excited. I did not talk to him, but I was like very, it felt very like LA starstruck situation. Um, I don't know. I really like it. I think there's some good gags and that. I really like the girlfriend of Garth and, and uh, Chris Farley in a totally separate role from the role he played in the first movie. I need to watch that one again. I, I've obviously seen Wayne's World 1, Wayne's World original, like a million bajillion times. And I've seen Wayne's World 2 probably like a quarter as many times. So that's right. why I would say one probably. But, you know, maybe if I watch them back to back objectively. No, we're just going to say one is the winner because that's the one that I chose. So <laughs> I win. All right. Number two for me, this one's going to Indiana. This one is based on a graphic novel of the same name, and I think it's one of the rare occasions where the movie is better than the source material. It is 2005's A History of Violence. Just closing up, fellas. Coffee. I'm sorry, we're, we're closed. Oh, I know that. I do know that. Ah! Shut up! We don't carry much cash here. <laughs> don't move. Do it! saved our lives. Hello, my hero. Tom Stahl is a family man with long-standing ties to this community. Right now, this community is rallying behind him and calling him a hero. Way to go, Tommy. Great, more reporters. You don't look like reporters. You're the big hero. Really don't like talking about it, sir. You sure took care of those two bad men, Joey. My name is Tom. It's Joey. You tell me. This is a really, really great small town crime story. So it's about this family man who is named Tom. He's a coffee shop owner in this very small Midwestern town, the type where you could just walk down Main Street and hit everything there is to see in this town. And he lives with his wife and his two kids. And one morning he's in his coffee shop and these two criminals roll into town and they start trying to cause trouble in the coffee shop and it ends up happening where they start to get violent and Tom kills them. He kills them both. And he's considered a small, like a the hometown hero. Everybody's, you know, giving him high fives. The cops are like open and shut case. He's starting to get some attention on the local news. And that exposure brings a, another mobster to town played just brilliantly by Ed Harris because he's looking for a guy named Joey. And Tom here looks a lot like Joey, and he is very convinced that Tom, this small town coffee shop owner, used to have a different life. It's uh, it's like part mystery, part um, part crime story, but this is a David Cronenberg movie, and he was at his most straightforward, I think, with this ch small chunk in the the mid two thousands where he had Eastern Promises and this movie. And I really like it. It's it's really interesting, but it still has those Cronenberg bursts of violence. And when violence is presented on screen here, it is brutal. Uh, there are places where other movies would cut away, and this one does not. Viggo Mortensen plays Tom, and he's just great as this kind of clueless coffee shop owner at first that his, his journey takes a couple twists and turns over time. And Maria Bello also steals the show as his wife, who has no idea what's going on, and she's starting to piece some of the puzzle together as she goes. William Hurt is in this as the brother Richie, and he's maybe on screen like seven minutes, but he does the most he could do with his time on screen. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for those seven minutes. It was also nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay at the Oscars, and uh, it's totally different from the graphic novel. I've read the graphic novel that one gets a little bloated near the end, and this totally changes the ending of the source material, which worked just totally towards its benefit. It's a great movie, A History of Violence from 2005. If you haven't seen it, listeners, I highly recommend it. Amazing. Not for the squeamish, but a uh, really good movie. <laughs> sometimes um, sometimes I'm okay with that. Sometimes I'll watch like a, a gory... I mean, I Last Duel, I thought, had an amazing battle scene. Not set in the Midwest, but... <laughs> amazing and gross uh violent scene there at the end um do you want to know something weird my number one is also graphic novel inspired 
Ooh, all right, grand finale. Mari Eakin, <laughs> what do you got at number one? My number one movie is a little film called American Splendor. Trigger Tree. Look at this. We got Superman and Batman. And what about you, young man? I'm Harvey Pekar. It doesn't sound like a superhero to me. Oh, forget this. Why does everybody have to be so stupid? Here's me, all grown up and going nowhere. I'm not doing as great as you think. I gotta get out of here. <coughs> My second wife divorced me. I work a dead-end job as a file clerk. So if you're the kind of person looking for some fantasy figure to save the day, guess what? You got the wrong movie. In the early 60s, I met this shy retiring cat from Philadelphia. Meet my buddy, Bob Crump. You should see his comics. I could write comic book stories that are different from anything that's being done. This is great stuff. Can I illustrate them? These are all about you? Yeah. You turn yourself into a comic hero. Ordinary life is pretty complex stuff. I have not seen this. You've not seen it? Oh, it's so good. No. Um, it coming straight out of Cleveland. Starring Paul Giamatti as Harvey Picar, who's like a famous sort of like alternative com- um, comic artist, like in the vein of R. Crumb. And uh, it's just sort of about him like struggling through being like a weird, grizzled old man, sort of finding love with this woman named Joyce, who's played by Hope Davis. And he has this like certified nerd, is what he says, like a certified nerd best friend <laughs> named Toby Radloff. He like works at a VA. Um, Judah Friedlander plays Toby Radloff and like Judah Friedlander and everything else plays Judah Friedlander like everything else he's ever in but in this he's so good as this like actual guy because there are parts when they sort of break the fourth wall and it's like oh no there's real Toby and real Harvey Pekar and I just think it's such an amazing movie about sort of like this eccentric guy um and it sort of incorporates some of his comic book panels and, and graphic novel panels like into the into the movie. It's just like it doesn't have a a lot going on. I'll say like it's not like Twister or something where there's like a big dramatic uh, arc. But I just think it's really good. And I think it's sort of about like coming into your own as an adult and figuring it out to some extent. Because I don't really think that Harvey Pekar even would say that he ever really figured it out. He's, he's passed since. Um yeah i mean again i grew up in cleveland and i feel like a very strong attachment to cleveland and there's locations in this that like I dr- i've driven by thousands of times you know or like bakeries yeah, that i've been to yeah. that they shot at and so i certainly felt an attachment to this movie when it came out but i also think it's just really good like i think paul giamatti is really excellent in it it got an academy award nomination for best writing for adapted screenplay there was like a you know hope davis was up for a golden globe like it's it did very well in Rotten Tomatoes. Like it didn't make a ton of money. Like it made under ten million dollars. But I think yep. it's just a very well done, interesting movie. Like a weird movie. American Splendor. I'll have to watch this. I worked at a store that sold movies when this came out, and I remember constantly seeing the cover of Paul Giamatti like laying up against storyboards mm-hmm. or like comic book storyboards and. I just have never seen it, so I'll need to put this on my list. You should. I love it. You know, I'm not like a Paul Giamatti completist. Uh, I think he's very good occasionally. Um, And I just think he's really good in this. I think it's like, it's one of those examples of, how do I put this? When it's like, that's the perfect role for that actor. That's the perfect role for that actor. That's the perfect role for that actor. And you're just like, it all sort of comes together and there's not like a weak, weak character in the bunch. Well, I will have to check that out. I do not consider myself a Paul Giamatti completist either, but uh, <laughs> he wouldn't be a bad actor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't want to see American or uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2 again. <laughs> but, okay. My number one here is, in, in my eyes, the quintessential Midwest movie. When you said Midwest movies, I was like, okay, this has to be on there, but it's probably going to be her number one, too. And then at the beginning of the show, you said you've never seen it. And that is 1996's Fargo. You want your own wife kidnapped. Her dad, he's real well off. A salesman. 
two crooks. Would it kill you to say something? A cop. You were having sex with a little fella then. Yeah. yeah. A crime that could only have happened this way. So what's the deal now? Triple homicide? In Fargo. Jeez. What do you fellas got yourself mixed up in? A terrific twisted comedy, says Rolling Stone, from the creators of Raising Arizona, Fargo. I'm cooperating here. Are you sure? Rated R, now playing at select theaters. I can't believe you haven't seen this. This that that blows my mind. It's one of those I have a lot of like really staggering sort of blind spots. Like I've never seen Terminator 2. Like if it came out at a certain point in my life, I just didn't see it. Um, for whatever reason. So I've just never, I've just never gone back and caught it. I need to. It's like, I've seen every other Coen Brothers movie, you know, it's just, I don't know why. Not that one. I watched the show. Oh, you've seen the show? Okay. Yeah. This is kind of like what the first season of the show, the first season of the show kind of follows the same narrative, but it's about a car salesman named Jerry Lundergaard played just amazingly by William H. Macy and he hires these two thugs to kidnap his wife in order to extort his father-in-law for some investment money. But, of course, this is a Coen Brothers movie, so everything goes sideways. And a very pregnant police chief named Marge Gunderson joins the investigation, and then things get even worse for Jerry and those criminals. Everything about this, to me, screams North Dakota slash Minnesota from the, what do they call it, the, the cottage-style or farmhouse-style decor, the home mm-hmm. decor, to the just thick, nearly Canadian border accents, the nonstop snow. I work with a lot of people from Minnesota, and and I have conference calls with these folks all the time. And every time during the winter, all I can think of is Fargo. I think it's a masterpiece in every aspect. I'd easily put it in my top 10 films of all time. The acting is fantastic. William H. Macy as Jerry is just so perfect as this weaselly, inexperienced criminal who's in way over his head, Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare play the thugs, uh, Carl and Gare, and they are just fantastic. They just, they can't get along. They're constantly bickering. Steve Buscemi can't keep his mouth shut. Uh, Peter Stormare doesn't want to say a word. They are just so good bouncing off of each other. And of course, the best actor in the whole movie, Frances McDormand as Marge. She's honestly one of the best cops on screen ever. She's really smartly written. She's just like sharp as a tack. And one of the other things I think that is great about Fargo is that her being pregnant never has any bearing on the story. Mm -hmm. And when you watch a movie like this, it's like, oh, that's going to come up later. She's going to like almost have them and go into labor or something, or there's going to be some threat of the baby being harmed. But nope, like it's literally just a character trait and that's it. Uh, I, I love that about this movie. This script just overall is great. So many tense moments, so many comedic moments, even a really sad moment at this restaurant with this dude named Mike. Uh, and it's brilliantly shot, shot by Roger Deakins, who is like the, the all kinds yeah. of amazing work. But yeah, F- Fargo is, for me, the quintessential Midwest movie. I love it. I can't recommend it highly enough if you haven't seen it. I mean, I, it's always been one of those movies I need to see. And like everything about it seems like something I'd like. I just never got into it for whatever reason. I should have watched it you know, before I did this. But also, I would argue Minnesota counts as Midwest. When you get to the Dakotas, that's like High Plains. Technically, it's Midwest. Is it? I don't know. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's it's debatable for sure. It's debatable. There's um, I was literally so I pulled up. I said, what's the Midwest? Like what counts in the Midwest? Google <laughs> and Google was like, North Dakota, you're all right. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, did you have any honorable mentions that like almost made your list, but you couldn't fit them on? Yeah, honorable mention a movie again that I've seen a zillion bajillion times. Um Filmed in Cleveland, but set in Indiana. It's uh, a Christmas story. Oh, yeah. It's, again, like a very sort of Midwestern period piece. Um, Tommy Boy, sort of also an, another Ohio movie about sort of like a, a, a factory that's shutting down uh, in that same vein, but very different. Uh, Roger and Me, if you're, if you're including mm-hmm. documentaries, Michael Moore you know, say what you will about Michael Moore, but that movie's very good. Um, sort of looking at like what is happening to a town and that has only continued on. And uh, I, I, da- I had a dalliance with young adult, which is a movie that I, that I really liked uh, and continue to like, but just didn't feel quite as strongly about. There are a couple that, that narrowly missed my list. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri was one of them. Um, I just haven't seen it since 2017. So I, <laughs> 
couldn't really speak much about it. I just remember I really liked it. Uh, Minnesota movies, The Mighty Ducks. A lot of people don't remember that oh, Mighty yeah. Ducks was set in Minnesota before the hockey team was placed in L.A. Even the new show is set in Minnesota. Yeah, yep. Um, another Minnesota film that uh, I really think is kind of crazy if you watch it as an adult, Drop Dead Fred. Oh, God. Which, um, yeah, it's, it's again, one that is horrifying as an adult, but when you're younger, it's like, oh, this is really silly not to recommend another podcast on your podcast but the how did this get made about drop dead fred is incredible oh i'm a huge how did this get made fan a huge (laughs) fan and yes we listened to that one my wife and i watched the movie and then listened to that episode and uh yeah hilarious Mm -hmm. field of dreams almost made my list great movie it's like almost it was on my list as well but it was like is it like too much of a cliche of itself at this point it was like let's just pick some let's shine some lights on some different movies i guess yeah, that's that's one of the ones that I knocked off for Wayne's World to have its appearance on there. And then this one technically takes place in the Midwest, but I didn't put it on my list because it has nothing to do with what I think of the Midwest. And that's RoboCop, which is set in Detroit. Oh, yeah. They have a RoboCop statue in Detroit. I mean, like it's a big it's a big deal. Mara Eakin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great list. Where can people find more of your work and um, what do you want to promote? I would like to promote me getting a job because I don't have one right now. So if anybody wants to hire me full-time, that'd be great. Um, I was at the AV club for a while and now I'm not. And uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and everything at at Mara E. So M-A-R-A-H-E. Cool. I will put links to your social media in the show notes. If you have a publication online, hire Mara. She's great. And if you want to read more of her stuff, you can find it all online and if the uh, if the Wayne's World piece is available by the time the show goes up, you'll find a link to it. If not, just follow Mara's Twitter, follow my Twitter. I will repost it as she does. Thank you. I appreciate it. I know you probably thought about your own Midwest films while we were going through our list. So which Midwest films did we miss? What would be in your top five? Let me know on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast on Instagram. And your comment might just make it to the next show. If you want to support the show, help me out by rating the show on whatever podcast app you use, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, please give me a rating, give me a review, and annoyingly spread the word. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some movies set in the Midwest. (laughs) 